Our reading this morning is from the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up to 1 Samuel. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning but would like one, we have our Frontlines team. They have some Bibles. So if you just throw up your hand, they can bring one to you and you can join along with us. We'd encourage you all to follow along. So once again, the book of 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 3. In verse 1, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called for me. But he said, I did not call. Go lie down. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called for me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again, the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called for me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, thank you, Sonia, for uh, so beautifully reading uh, that to us. Some of you are maybe aware of this story. If this is a new story for you, really excited to jump into it. Uh, by way of introduction, though, again, we want to give a special welcome if you are here because uh, you were invited, because you're uh, part of a different faith community on the University of Guelph. I am uh, Matt. I am the representative on that team of the evangelical faith tradition. And so we are so happy to have you if you are joining us uh, from that It's also exciting, as you would have obviously experienced so far, we are praying particularly about Freedom Sunday. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, but at this time in in history, in our world's history, there are more slaves than ever before. Uh, And that is maybe shocking for you to hear, but it's the truth. There are more slaves today than there ever were before. Sometimes we think as a culture, oh, we've gotten beyond that. We we haven't gotten beyond that. There's still um, people that out of their selfish desires uh, make others serve them. And uh, that can be in some of the ways that we saw on the screen. That could be in other ways. I'd encourage you, um, I'm passionate about one particular area, and that's the clothing industry. Um, And I would encourage you, uh, if you have Netflix, to watch the documentary, The True Cost, uh, and be awoken, uh, interested in the, the world. Um, slavery really that's going on and related to clothing that we consume here, which is made uh, by people in really, really poor conditions. If a dress is $15, it's been made on the back of somebody that is not getting paid well. 
there's always a cost to things that we consume that are cheap here. And so I'd encourage you to check that out. It's one thing to pray about it. The next part, though, as we pray is to act, right? It's quite simple to pray, but it's another thing to actually act out of our prayers. And that is uh, what we are called to do as followers of Jesus if we take our prayer seriously is also to act upon what we pray and seek the welfare of our city and our world on behalf of God. Well, if you are joining us today for the first time, I'm going to try to give you a little bit of a a review. We've been talking about over the last couple of weeks what the church is. We've been asking the question, what is church? And for many people in our culture, church is uh, understood as this religious building or uh, buildings that we see across our city. And there's some confusion about what the church is and why there's so many different, what would seem like divisions, denominations. And so we've been asking the question here at Church of the City, as we do every year at about this time of what is the church and if the church is different than what we are perceiving it to be, how are we going to actually live that out in the culture in which we live? And so a couple of weeks ago, we discovered as we unpacked a bit of the Bible and the scriptures teaching on what the church is, that the church is a family. The church is a a collection of brothers and of sisters. And so we asked and we answered the question that if we are brothers and sisters, then that changes the way that we live amongst one another, that we relate to each other, that we then do life together. We then discovered last week that the church is a group of missionaries, a group of people that as a family are on mission together to influence the world, to to bring the kingdom of God here in Guelph, and as we pray here in Guelph as it is in heaven, that as people come in contact with us, that they would not only see the good news lived out, but that they'd hear the good news of Jesus. And if you're confused about what this good news is, that will come out as I progress today. But that is the vision of the scriptures related to who the church is. The the church is a family of missionaries. Now, that's lovely to say, right? And some of us are like, wow, what a cool vision for the church. It's lovely to say doing and acting is a completely other thing. And I will, I will be honest, I believe that church culture has bought into a lie of what culture has said church is. That church is an hour, an hour and a half, if you're really going for it, two hours on a Sunday morning. And that's what church is. And you see, you see this a lot in church planting. And I talk to a lot of church planters and suddenly a church is launched. How is the church launched? It's launched on a Sunday. And so suddenly a church is planted on a Sunday. That is a load of crap. And I'm pretty passionate about this because the reality is, is that if the church is a family of missionary, and we're going to see disciples, then that church from the core launch team, from the first few people that started to have a vision over we're going to, we're going to be an active body, we're going to represent the kingdom of God, that's when the church started. It's not suddenly when, hey, well, we've got our building, we've got our sound system, we're going to pump this place, like it's just going to be a big show. Like that is an expression of the church being the church, but that's not the start of the church. Now, some of you are like, well, that's fairly uncomfortable. How dare you? Read the scriptures. I challenge you with the scriptures. There is no prescription for when you plant a church. Have the best band. Have the best venue. And that's the start of the church. Not at all. What about our brothers and sisters that are serving the Lord underground? They cannot publicize their services. Is that the church? Yes. 
I dare say it is the church. So we need to change our perspectives on what this is. And if we change our perspectives, therefore we live differently. We begin to see each other as brothers and sisters. We begin to live on mission together. It changes. If, you're, if the first thing you think about when you think church is a Sunday gathering, um, you've got to retrain yourself. Because the church is a body of people doing life together. And they gather, and we gather in this, and I'm not saying this is bad. This is, this is a great opportunity for the church to come together. But the church is far more. Jesus Christ died for far more than to allow, you know, 12 people that will be up here on a Sunday morning be involved for all of this. Like, is that why Jesus died? Just so 12 people could be involved at the front on a Sunday morning and you could all sit here? No. He died so all of us would be involved, that all of us would go, that all of us would be brothers and sisters. If that sounds hard, this is the scripture's teaching about what the church is. So with that, uh, we're going to go to 1 Samuel, and some of you, again, are like, what does this have to do with what the church is? And I'm glad you're asking that question. But, la- but as an introduction again, last week we, we shared what is the Great Commission. Jesus' final commission is Great Commission to the disciples. And some of you know about this commission. It's in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And this is what he says, and it will be on the screen. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. This is a huge statement, by the way. Like, uh, this cannot just be a man. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a huge amount of authority. Like, think about this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. All nations, not just Canadian nation, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, a couple of things, because for some of us, we've been so used to the Christian church, we've been so used to Christian culture that we read these words and they just kind of glaze over because we've heard it so many times. So the fact that I'm like, think about the authority here for a second. You're like, wow, yeah, that's, that's quite a bit of authority. He's, he's a madman if he thinks he can speak to that authority and not be both God and man. But look what he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So we ask the question, okay, this is the command to the first you know, apostles here, but is this a command for us? And we discovered last week it is. So, therefore, our job description as followers of Jesus is to go and make a disciple. Now, did you ever stop and ask the question, well, what's that? <laughs> what's a disciple? Right? If that's what we're to be about, what are we to do? Right? You ever think about that? Disciple is the Greek word mathetes. Everyone say mathetes. Mathetes. You can impress somebody at lunchtime today. Uh, Mathetes. And what a disciple. The best English translation, while disciple works, to help us understand, it's actually, it means a learner. Or, as some of us might be, be provided the help of understanding, it's an apprentice. So think about it. Some of you are apprentices, maybe in a trade, maybe in the social sector, maybe in a private sector. You're an apprentice to somebody. And the desire for you as an apprentice is you come on and you're, you're being trained in a particular way and you shadow somebody else. And then the desire is that eventually you'd go and then other people would come and shadow you. This is what Jesus is saying here. Go therefore and make apprentices of Jesus, of me. Right? This is what he's saying. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit. I'm reading this very quickly. Teaching them. Okay, so there's some teaching involved. Teaching them to observe, to live out all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So right away, as an introduction, Jesus is saying, you as a family are going out on mission to train people. To train people to what? To observe all that I have commanded you. The way that I have taught you. The kingdom of God that I have introduced to you. You are to go and to train people how to live in light of the kingdom realities that I have taught you. He's fairly specific. You see his specific nature here, right? It's not just go and, you know, have a bunch of dinners. It's very specific. As much as dinner is a wonderful kingdom expression, and I'm not hammering on that. I love dinners. You guys know this. I love food here at Church of the City. We eat it all the time. The point being, he's saying there's also a training, there's a teaching, there's an observance to this way. Like that in an apprentice to be trained. That we too need to be trained in the way and in the practice of Jesus. Well, how do we do that? 1 Samuel 3. Let's jump in. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go through line by line. I'll do a little bit of description as to what's going on here. And at the end, we'll make some application. We'll understand the implications. So 1 Samuel 3 says this. Now the boy, so he's a boy, okay? Detail right out the bat, he's a boy. Now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So this is verse 1. A couple of things. Who's Samuel? And why is he ministering to Eli? Second question, who's Eli? Right? Remember, we got to get beyond this. Like, we just kind of read it, and it's a story that's so familiar, or like, we forget the details. We got to ask the question, who are these people? And should it matter? Right? So who is Samuel? Who is Eli? Well, go with me. You can go back to 1 Samuel 1. And in 1 Samuel 1, we are introduced to Samuel's parents. We read this in 1 Samuel 1. We're going to start in verse 9 to 20, and then I'll uh, summarize it for us afterwards. After they, this is Samuel's parents, Samuel has not been born yet, had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Hannah is going to be Samuel's mother. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, that is Hannah, was deeply distressed. The reason that she is distressed is because she is barren. She cannot have children. There's a a fascinating theme throughout the Old Testament of barren women syndrome. And you might be what are you talking about? Think about all of the people that God ends up calling into special ministry whose mothers were initially introduced as barren women. It's amazing that you just begin thinking about it. So she was distressed because she was barren and her husband, because she was barren, took a second wife so that he could have offspring. And then we find out earlier that this second wife would mock her because of her barrenness. Like you would be distressed too. And prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She was leaning into at the time as what is known as the Nazarite vow. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. What a detail to include, eh? Like she's praying, but her lips are moving. And Eli sees her as the priest and is like this. She's drunk. 
And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. See the imagery she's using there? You think I'm pouring wine into myself? I'm pouring out myself to the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife. That's lingo for they had sex. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So, a little bit of summary. Who is Samuel? Samuel is the son of a woman that was barren, whom went back to the Lord repeatedly and said, I, I, just, I desire a child, and if you were to give me a child, I will then dedicate him to the service of the Lord, or I'll bring him to the temple, the tabernacle, and he will serve the Lord there. And Eli sees her, thinks she's drunk as she's pouring out her request to the Lord, and he says, because of your desire, you shall have a son. And then she goes home, her husband and her make whoopee, and then they actually have a child. And as a result of this, she then says, I promised that I would give my son back. And so Samuel is now serving in the presence of this Eli, who at one point saw Hannah, saw her situation, and now Samuel is serving Eli in Shiloh. Now I have a map of where Shiloh was. It's about 32 kilometers north of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem here is area around Jabus. This is Jerusalem, Jabus, Gibeah, Jericho, we go up to Shiloh. And the tabernacle, or where the Ark of God was, the most holy place, this is where God's presence was. This is where the priests would serve. This is where all of the rituals took place before the temple would eventually be built in Jerusalem. It was here in Shiloh, the Ark of the Covenant. And it is here that we are introduced to Samuel, that he is serving Eli in this place of Shiloh, ministering before the Lord. The next detail that chapter 1 tells us is that there was no frequent visions of God. So you got to be remembering the writer here is setting us up for something, right? It was not frequent in those days for people to have visions or to hear from God. Uh, You got to remember that at this time, and maybe you didn't know this, but at this time, you know, we all sort of were like, oh God, like I talked to you. Like that wasn't the experience of these people. They had to go to a specific place. They had to go to Shiloh to even be close to the presence of God. And even then, they weren't even allowed in the most holy place where the presence of God was. They could only stand outside and look. It was only the priests of a particular lineage that were allowed into the presence of God. And so here we have, we're introduced to a situation in which God has been silent. You know, some of you have maybe felt that before. You've cried out to God. You're like, God, where are you? Speak, do something, show up for me. This has been going on for a long period of time for these people. It was infrequent. You'd think that there was probably some apathy building up, right? It was infrequent for God to speak. At that time, verse 2, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God 
was. The lamp of God, as we know as we study the scriptures, was lit from the evening until the morning. So we're to understand that the lamp of God not yet gone out, so it's sometime in the middle of the night. It might be just before dawn. Eli is in his lying place. Samuel is, is present, lying near the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. So right away, we're like, some of us are like, neat. No, think about it. There was no frequent visions at that time. God had not showed up. Right? Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. You get in the story? Samuel thinks it's Eli calling him. And like a good boy who's serving in the presence of the priest, he goes to Eli's spot and says, Hey, here I am, you called me. No, I didn't. Samuel's like, what are you talking about? I just heard someone call me. It must have been you. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. <laughs> but he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. You got to think, like, Eli's just frustrated this way. Like, I just got back to sleep. My eyes are dim. Go back. Leave me alone. I'm not calling you. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. He does not know the Lord in the sense that he does not know the Lord in a, in a way of a personal relationship. What I think is fascinating here, and, and I, don't, I don't think it's an immediate application, but I think what's interesting is that it is possible to serve in the presence of God, but not know the Lord. Think about it, somebody like, yeah, totally. Like, it's possible to participate in church gatherings, to participate in church life, to serve, and yet not know the Lord. Interesting. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. He's probably like, wow, this is amazing. Nobody's heard from the Lord in the longest time. Now, we don't read if he's kind of jealous about it, right? But he perceives something's going on here. It must be the Lord that's calling you. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel goes back and lies down in his place. Notice the difference in this description. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Now, some of us will remember when we studied Exodus, but when the Lord uses the name twice to refer to someone, it's expressing love, it's expressing intimacy, it's expressing knowledge of a person. It'd be like if I came to you and said your name twice. It's not enough that I just say it once. I say it twice to show to you that I really care about you. And so here the Lord does it with Samuel. Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I love that. 
Now, we're not going to continue on. I'd encourage you to continue on. But what we find out as the story progresses is that Samuel will go, will go on to become a prophet of God who will anoint the first two legitimate kings of Israel. And as a prophet, he must speak the words of God and never hide them. And Israel is therefore to respond and believe them. So this is a significant moment in the life of Samuel and the life of Israel. In the life of Eli. This is a, such a significant moment that all started with a woman who was being mocked and made fun of because she was barren. Yet God looked on her situation and she was given a child. Isn't that amazing? Like that's the miracle working God. Like it's not just miss that fact, right? Now again, you might be saying, well, what does this have to do with the church? And I would say, as I was thinking about this, and you'll notice that over the last, last two weeks and then this week, I'm using Old Testament stuff. And it's purposed because as we're going to go into a series next about what the Bible is, we have to see the Bible is this one large story about Jesus Christ. And so the themes of Jesus and the gospel pops up everywhere and that the Old Testament matters just as much as the New. But what we see here, I want you to go with me to John 10, verses 24 to 28. And this is Jesus, and he's teaching, and he's responding to a question, and he says this about discipleship, or what it means to follow Jesus, or those who are disciples of Jesus. He says this, chapter 10, verse 24 to 28 of John, says, Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So the Jews at this point are wanting to know, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've heard prophesied about for all of these years? Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not yet believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And then hear these words, connected to the theme of what we just read about in Samuel. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that interesting? I mean, think about it. Samuel's ears were not tuned, but once they were, he now knew the Lord. And here is Jesus talking about who are his disciples. The ones that follow him are those that hear his voice. So therefore, I would suggest that a disciple of Jesus is someone who hears, knows, and follows Jesus just as Samuel would begin to do in that moment. Now a word on each. Number one. A disciple of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, is someone who listens to Jesus. Now, if you think about it, this was the hardest part for Samuel because he wasn't hearing the proper voice, right? He was mistaking it. You've maybe heard sort of the, the fun little story of uh, a, a group of guys from a rural community who go into downtown Toronto, and they're in Dundas Square. And, and if you've ever been in Dundas Square, you'll know that there are sounds galore, coming from every which direction, a lot of different sounds. And one of them hears a cricket. And he turns to his friend and he says, do you hear the cricket? He says, no, I just hear cars yelling people. <laughs> no, but listen, listen, you can hear it. 
and he quiets himself and he listens. He closes his eyes and he remembers the sound of the cricket that he would be used to hearing in the rural community and then he catches it. And they look around and they find it on the ground, right? Jesus says often surrounding his teachings, and maybe it's been sort of confusing to you as you've been reading it, but in Mark 4 verse 9 is one example. And he, that is Jesus, said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus repeatedly is using this language of speaking and hearing of his disciples, of those that will understand. And so we as disciples are those that hear Jesus. Now, I would just want to say that I think there's a lot of barriers to hearing, right? Like if you're those rural guys, you need to recognize that there are barriers to hearing the cricket. And these are a few barriers that I just, I've identified. Number one, I would say that we struggle with the barrier in our culture of authority. And then what we need to do is identify the highest authority in our lives, the voices that we are listening to. For, for a number of us, we struggle hearing Jesus because we don't believe Jesus' voice is the one voice that we want to listen to or need to listen to. We genuinely live and act as if there's other voices that are more important than the voice of Jesus, than the authority of the Bible, of what Jesus teaches. We've grown accustomed to being okay with listening to other voices and allowing other authorities to speak into our lives. And we're completely fine with that. And the challenge with that is that sometimes we grow so... Our, our minds are so falsely understanding a voice that someone is speaking to us with, right? We're not thinking objectively about the person that it is and what they are saying and if they actually have their best intentions in mind when they think about us. And we live in Canada, and Canada is, we're an extremely apologetic culture. So, you know, if you have friends that never call you out on stuff, they're not really that great of friends, I would argue, because friends want to call you out on the things in your life to help you get and grow better. Right? So I think one of the barriers in, in for you and I in listening to Jesus is genuinely, genuinely struggling with authority. A second thing is maybe the blind spots that are in our lives. The areas of our lives that we think we're totally good, yet if we're honest, there, there are areas that we're, we're, we are blind about. Another blind spot might be a habit or a sinful pattern that we're living in that prevents us from hearing God. It's that addiction, that thing you don't want anyone to know about. It could be something that you're fine with other people knowing about, but you've become so blind to that habit and to that sin that you're unwilling to identify it as a challenge or a problem in your life. Or maybe it is the pace of your life. I'm growing increasingly concerned both for myself and for our culture in that we live lives without margin, and so we have no time to listen. Psalm 46 verse 10 says this, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. In a culture that just, we just, you know, someone says, how are you? If you don't say you're busy, then they think that you're like not living a valuable or meaningful life, right? How are you? Oh, busy. Good. Me too. We're valuable. Yeah, we matter in this world. Like if you were to say, I've got lots of margin in my life, they'd be like, man, you must be lazy. Go do something, (laughs) right? Because doing apparently means value in our life. And we have no margin. Or how about the fact that for some of us, a barrier to listening is that we haven't been trained to listen. We haven't been trained to hear our master. As Eli says, my child, I'm sure, go back and say, speak for your servant is listening. 
Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We need to tune ourselves, train ourselves to hear. I think about the band, right? And some of us, um, we, we come in and we're like, wow, they're, they're, they're quite good, right? But if someone were playing off tune, would you be able to hear them playing off? Now, for many of us in this room, we wouldn't. But if you're a person with a mu- musician or, or background in music, you'd be able to say, there's something off up there. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, The, uh, the Tipping, not The Tipping Point, uh, Blink, fantastic book about the brain and psychology and how if you've been trained so well in something, you'll be able to spot the, the places that other people aren't spotting. Now, I don't not like pride myself in being like a house renovator or things like that, but we've done a number of things in our home over the last, number, last few years because our house is 150 years old. And so as a result, I've kind of like trained myself in some new areas. And as a result, I now go to homes and I notice pe- things of detail that the average person would never notice. Now, you all are sitting there like, wow, makes so much sense. But how do you know because you've been trained? And I would say that if you are going to listen to Jesus, to practice the way of Jesus, you need to be trained to listen, to remove things from your life so that you can listen so that you can be centered. So first, we've got to listen to Jesus. Secondly, we've got to actually believe what Jesus says. And this is the knowing part. Notice what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice, so they listen. And then he says, and I know them. Now, I would say that we have an extremely shallow understanding of what the word believe means in our culture. Like, you can believe in a slew of things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you've bought in. And when Jesus says in John 3, 16, whoever believes in me shall not perish, belief is, in that culture, it is to be understood as to have complete confidence in, to trust in, to actually commit to. So to believe, therefore, to know, is to put full hope, confidence, and trust in Jesus. I would ask us the question, do you believe Jesus at his word. This is what he will go on to say in other places. John 14, verse 23. He says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to, come to him and make our home with him. Repeating, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Or Luke 11, verse 28. He says, Blessed are rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. To not to just hear, but to know Thirdly, we can hear, we can know or believe, but then thirdly, we go out and do what Jesus says. The way of Jesus is a way of life. It's a lifestyle. Now, some of, some of us are maybe like, I've, I've heard this before, but I must say that I am increasingly concerned for the Christian community and how similar our culture looks to the culture of our world. Now, you may be like, okay, you're coming down hard. Last week, I talked about how there is earth and there is heaven, and we are to represent the overlap. I would simply ask us the question, does your life look like the overlap? Do your dreams look any different than your neighbors or your coworkers? Do your motivations look any different than those that are around you? 
Do you prioritize different things in your life than those, do, than those that do around you? Do you reorient your finances not to be self-centered, but to be other-centered? These are some of the practices of the way of Jesus, his kingdom on earth. Matthew 7, verse 24 to 27, this is at the end of Jesus's, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he finishes the teaching with this, after he's taught on lust, anger, being set apart, all of these different things. He, he says this to kind of wrap it up. He says, everyone then who hears them, who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I think there's a kid's song that's been made about this. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. See what Jesus is doing as he comes out of the Sermon on the Mount? He has all of these really, like if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus, I mean, it is countercultural. Like love your enemy. Love Kim Jong-un. Love ISIS militants. Like that is, what do you mean? This is Jesus' teaching. And what he's saying is, if you do these things, not just hear them, but you do them, therefore your house will be the one that in the midst of the storm, and a lot of us have seen imagery of storms, will stand firm. But if you do not, then when the winds come and the storm rages, your house will fall to pieces. I think Jesus is being rather serious here. <laughs> right? It's not like, oh, here's just a nice little happy ending for you. He's like, no, there are consequences for the patterns and the practice of your life. And what I believe this means, and I, and I heard this from a friend recently, he said that in the Christian life, it's about training, not trying. It's about training, not trying. Now, if you've ever trained for something before, a couple of years ago, I trained and ran a marathon, which is 42.2 kilometers. And some of you are like, I could never do that. I said that before I did it too. But the way that I was able to do it was I committed to a rigorous training schedule. On Mondays, I was out for a, a slow 5K, and you're like, a slow 5K? I've never run 100 meters fast or slow. I ran a slow 5K. On Tuesdays, I went and did a fast tempo run with the Guelph Victors, who are amazing runners, and I'm just like in the back of the pack, like, if I will just finish, like, this would be great. And on Thursday, I went out for another slow five, and then on Saturdays, Saturday mornings, I would get up at six, and we'd start with, we'd run 20, then the next week, we'd run uh, 30, then the next week, we'd go down to 15. You know you're running a long time when you're thinking a short run is 15 or 20 kilometers. And then the next week, the, at the peak, we were going out, and we we're running 35 kilometers. Now, you say, that is absurd. It is absurd. Runners are absurd. It, it, you have to be absurd to get up and go and run 42.2 kilometers. But the point being... It involved training, and it was work. And some of us have this perspective of our Christian lives, of our walks, of our falling, of our discipleship to Jesus that, you know what, I'll only be a disciple or I'll only do any training if I feel like it. I'm telling you, if I trained for the marathon on days when I felt like it, I would have never run the marathon. 
It involves training. Trying, you'll continually fail. But when you train, when you bring into your life practices and disciplines, it's amazing. It's amazing how far you can go. So I'm telling you, I, I, I listen to, uh, you know, in DNA, our own guy's DNA, I hear of other DNAs, and people are coming and they're confessing the same stuff all over the, all over the place. It's like, oh, I went out and tried this week. Stop trying and train. What are the practices that you're introducing into your life to, to bring about a training regiment that will allow you to become more like Christ? And then fourthly, we're to practice all of this in community. The New Testament is written to a group of people. Therefore, all of this is to be lived out and practiced in community. You know, when people talk about their insular relationships with God, that language is so foreign to the Bible because it was always written to a community of people. So the only way you best practice this is with a group of people. And I'll tell you, I had a training partner when I was running my marathon. His name was Ian. And Ian and I would do those long runs together every Saturday. And in all of the success that I've ever had in going to the gym on a regular basis, it's always been when I'm going with somebody else. And some of you will know this, you know, January 1st rolls around, it's like, I want to get back to the gym. Lovely. Get a buddy or you will stop going to the gym in a week and a half. Right? It involves intensity of asking other people to come alongside you. And so you cannot live this Christian life and be a disciple of Jesus alone. You're going to fail time and time again. So you're like, I know, I know I failed. Yeah. You're, over and over again, train, do not try, and do it with a community. And here at Church of the City, we invite you to be part of these things called missional communities. And it's where we're living out our identity of family. We're, we're saying to each other, how could we be brothers and sisters We're trying to train in mission. We're saying, who can we love? Who can we serve? Who can we bring the kingdom of God to? Because the kingdom of God is present wherever the followers of Jesus are. And then we're saying, how are we going to train each other, disciple each other, so that every day we get better as we walk along in our relationship with Christ? And when you do that with the community, when you do that with brothers and sisters, it's amazing. And so some of the ways, as you've heard this, some of the ways of getting involved in a missional community, one of the ways is you email me, matt, M-A-T-T, at churchofthecity.ca. We have no other mats on staff, so it's really simple. Matt at churchofthecity.ca. Eventually it will be Spencer at churchofthecity.ca in about a month's time. But you email me because I want to introduce you to some of our communities that could really use some people. Uh, we have some communities that could really just use three or four more people in the room. It would help because five or six people, while it happens, if somebody cancels, it's like, okay, are we still going to do it tonight? So you can email me about that. Second way is you look at our website, churchofthecity.ca slash communities, and there's a map there, and we have about 13 or 14 missional communities laid out on a map. And if you click on one of those little arrows, what will appear is a little box that says who that community is, who the leaders are, and what they're on mission to, or what they're, what they're working together all about. And so what I'd intru- ask you to do is email them, okay, and say, hey, could we get together, and I'd love to hear more about your missional community. And here's where I'm going to ask that we put a stop to. Stop just going to different dinners and trying one on for size. Um, and I know that this has been part of some of the culture. And some of you are like, what do you mean? That's been ha- it, ha- it has been happening. And, and why that is a challenge is that if you show up to the family dinner that we host on Tuesday and you're kind of like, I'm just trying to get a feel for it. And suddenly you don't come back next week. 
we're all going to go, well, I guess they didn't like us. Right? So the, the request is meet up with the leaders, talk to them about what the mission is, and if you're sold out for the mission, then join them. But don't just try on a whole bunch of missional communities. That's not what they're purposed for, really. Or the third option is just sit, come to the welcome home lunch, ask us questions, and then we'll, we'll do a welcome, um, we'll do a missional community information dinner in the next couple months, and then you might birth into a new missional community. But that, that's just getting really, really practical with us, that in order to do this, that's how we do it. Now, lastly, okay, and this is the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus, he lived the life that we could not live to give us a life we do not deserve. And as you've been listening, you've been going, man, I don't measure up. And, and if that is you thinking that, good, you need to know that. Because you can go out and you can have all the best intentions, but you need to know that, that you're going to fall short. And that doesn't give you freedom to go, I'm just going to go out and fall short and it's no big deal. But it is to say that you, it is impossible for you and I to live the perfect life that could lead to an eternity with Jesus Christ. And Jesus knew this. And God knew this. He said, you're trying so hard. Stop trying. Train empowered by the Spirit. And follow me. But remember is that I have made a way for you. And I've lived the perfect life that you are incapable of living so that you could spend eternity with me. Eternal life. This is what we are made for. When God created Adam and Eve, he desired that they would live and that they'd rule and reign forever. Death, therefore, is the enemy. So death is the enemy of human beings. But thanks be to God, through Jesus, for those that follow Jesus, we are given away, away from that death to eternal life. That's amazing. So Christians, just as a byproduct of that, you don't have to be scared of death. You can welcome it. Because it means that I will live forever with God. And that's insanely good news. So who is the church? The church is a family of missionary disciples. The church is a family of missionary disciples. And this applies not just to Church of the City. This is the global church. What is the definition of the global church? The global church, as defined by the scriptures, is a family of missionary disciples who live out our lives as brothers and sisters, who are on mission, bringing the kingdom of God to this earth, and thirdly, are training in the way of Jesus. Who are practicing the way of Jesus. I love it. I hope you do too. I hope you want to be in on it. And so if you have never committed your life to following Jesus, of understanding the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and being part of it, I'd invite you to become a part of a missional community. And I would also invite you to say yes to Jesus today as a first step and to begin the journey. And while his way seem, it is hard. <laughs> if any follower of Jesus ever tells you it's not, they're lying. It is hard to follow Jesus, or they're not faithfully following Jesus in a culture. It is hard. And so this teaching, I recognize, it it's maybe feels difficult. It's like, okay, so I gotta go do a bunch of, don't, don't hear that, train. 
Don't try. But discipleship is about training. It's about growing more accustomed. You know, we are probably the most malnourished culture ever when it comes to the Bible. Yet we have more resources today about the Bible than any culture has ever had before. A great way to begin that training is to listen to God's word, to begin a practice of reading it. It'll change your life. Because I'm telling you, if, if your spiritual relationship and your training is solely based on my spirituality or what you hear on Sunday morning here, when the storm of life comes, your house will fall down. One, don't put that weight on us, the teachers. We can't carry that. But two, grow with Jesus. Grow in community. My, my real hope is that this, this Sunday morning is not the only time where you've taken some time out of your week to listen to Jesus. That's a real problem if it is. You would never run a marathon. And I'm sure you've heard the saying, life's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Get training and walk with others who would love to help you train. You will not feel like waking up at 6 a.m. to read your Bible, maybe for the first couple days, but then you won't. <laughs> but we do it. Accountability, relationship. Sound fair? So disciple is as Samuel did. Says every single day, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. If we can pray with you, if we can come alongside you, I invite you to come to the front as we turn and now sing. We'd love to join you. If you would like to pray for healing, we'd love to pray that over you. But please come forward. And as we transition, let's pray now. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you invite us into this journey of apprenticeship. And God, I know that if anyone out there is like myself, I struggle with apprenticeship because there's days where left to my human self, I don't want to do it. The Apostle Paul says, I do the things that I do not want to do. So I pray, Jesus, today that you would remind us that you live the life we could not live to give us the life that we do not deserve, which is life eternal with you. And so therefore, our obedience every single day does not lead to, it does not win us eternal life. You have given us eternal life, but it's in our obedience that we learn more about you, that we learn more about what it means to be a disciple. And we live a life that as we grow, is like a house that is sure to stand. So give us ears to hear. May we believe your truths and then may we live differently. In your son's name we pray, amen.